I'm really excited to be here today. And while I'm going to be talking about hope, there's something that I need to let you know sort of from the beginning. And that's that I'm in general a rather melancholic, cynical, the glass is not just half empty, but it is leaking and will soon be half uh, all the way empty, uh, the world is on fire sort of person. My wife calls me Debbie Downer. You might think I'm joking, but I had a colleague that said this uh, slide right here reminded her of me. This is the far side. The bluebird of happiness, long absent from his life, Ned is visited by the chicken of uh, depression. We decided that it should be actually the chicken of despair to really uh, 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 fit me. Two weeks ago, Time Hop reminded me of this lovely picture. Uh, Calvin's Alumni Magazine is doing a short article on my forthcoming Disability and Inclusive Communities book. This is Meets My Wife Allison. I was asked to rewrite part of it today because what I'd sent in originally had too much emphasis on what's wrong. And her response was, have they met you? <laughs> yeah, she knows me well. So I'm going to have a bit more to say about the book later and why, especially when I'm thinking about issues related to disability, I'm inclined towards negativity or despair. Uh, and for reasons that I think will become clear, we can't, I think, avoid all negativity. Sometimes it's all for it. But today my topic is on hope, and I want to help you, or to be more accurately, help us avoid despair. So today I'm going to do my best impression of an optimist. My mentor in graduate school said, give your best impression of a calm, cool, collected person. We give my best impression of a calm, cool, collected optimist. Not a naive not optimist, mind you, but an optimist nonetheless. Or at least, I'm going to try. And, and the reason for my optimism uh, today, the primary takeaway I want you to take uh, from today is this picture. I'll explain it here in a minute. I'm really tempted just to explain the picture and have us look at it for an hour. But I'm going to resist that temptation. The child on the right is our son Jameson. He's 11, goes to Grand Rapids Christian. Among, another, um, an, among a number of other disabilities, Jameson has autism and has a pretty significant level of the social impairment that often goes with that diagnosis. A few weeks ago, the fifth and sixth graders at his school were having a party at Sky Zone, one of the local trampoline parks that I think one of the kids' families owns. It's the kind of event that as a parent gives me lots of anxiety. Right? Uh, if it were a six-year-old, I just would be worried that it would be a trip to the ER again for some kind of broken bone or stitches. But with Jameson, right, there's, there's things that he can't do because of his physical disabilities. There's things that are just harder for him to do. But it's really the social exclusion as a parent that gives me all sorts of angst, all sorts of anxiety. And I, I confess, this is a Christian Educator Association, I, I think we can admit these confessions. I, I thought, like, maybe we just won't bring it up to him. But I'm, no, I can't do that. Jameson, do you want to go to Sky Zone? And his initial response is always no. And then he thought about it. Yes. Shoot, now I'm going to take you. Because what I've often seen is the way in which he's in a place with other kids. Right? It's like he's not there. And so I went and I stayed, and this is what I saw. And this is, I saw, I counted, and I was taking names, and I shared them with Kim Primus, uh, some of you know. I said, these are the kids, this is what happened. And the thing that I love most about this picture is that Jameson's on the right, and he's leading where they're going. His, his friend on the left, one of his classmates, not even in his class this year, was in his class the last couple of years, sought Jameson out, spent half the time that we were there with him, and let Jameson lead for what they were doing. It's fantastic. And that kid, those friends that he has at that school, and thinking about how they're in a better position than I was as a sixth grader is what gives me hope. In addition to doing some advocacy work, uh, we moved to Grand Rapids from Idaho a few years ago. As many people with kids with disabilities, we had a bad experience with the local public school. 
Um, we started an uh, advocacy company that we all went to and represent families in IEP meetings. Uh, but my primary job is I'm an academic. I teach at Calvin. In fact, I teach philosophy. And this is usually the part of the conversation that like people start looking for the way out. <laughs> conversation killer. What do you teach? Philosophy. Oh. I'm going to do my best not to be too academic today. But I do want to be clear about what I mean by hope. I don't mean the cheap and easy sense of hope as I hope that Ohio State beats Michigan again this year in football. That'll probably happen. Or I hope that Trader Joe's isn't out of those wonderful vegan chocolate chips, as they too often are. We sometimes use the word hope as if it's interchangeable for just a desire or a wish, something that we would like to happen. But that's not what I mean by hope. By hope, I mean the theological virtue that's at the heart of the Christian tradition. The kind of hope that along with the virtues of faith and love or charity, Corinthians tells us that abides at the heart of the Christian faith. What it means to be a Christian is, among other things, to have faith, have hope, have love. This is the kind of hope that motivates my advocacy work. The kind of hope that I suspect motivates why most of you do what you do for your local schools. You don't go into teaching for the money. Right? You go in it to make a difference, thinking that what you're going to do, not just might, but has this kind of transformative power. So my point today is this. Never wants to respond to the first button. There we go. I always try to tell my, 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 my students, here's my agenda for the day. All of your faculty have agendas. I just try to be upfront about what mine is. I want to start talking about the theological virtues in general a little bit to give you a framework for what I'm talking about. And then I want to focus primarily on the theological virtue of hope and the fourfold nature of hope. At the heart of the Christian tradition, hope understood as a theological virtue has this very rich character that I think we often lose if we just reduce hope to a desire or a wish. And then I want to talk about how inclusive education is a locus for hope. Right? Seeing that picture on the previous slide is what helps get me through the day sometimes as a parent. So that's my plan. <coughs> so first, a little bit about the theological virtues. I, I teach ethics at Calvin. It's hard for me not to get excited talking about the virtues. In general, the virtues are going to be understood as good habits of the soul by which we live rightly and of which no one makes bad use, which God works in us without us. This is actually Thomas Aquinas' understanding of hope uh, from the from the, <coughs> the virtues are, in a sense, excellences of character. Right? The Greek word for virtue just means excellence. They're things that make us better humans. Not just better at things, but better as humans. And they're gifts of grace. This is where the Christian tradition primarily departs from Augusta, or from, from Aristotle, that is, is probably the best known uh, virtue theorist. For Aristotle, we become virtuous by doing the virtuous thing over and over and over. If you want to become a good runner, you do that by going out and running, and it hurts, and it's no fun, but over time you get good at doing it to the point where suddenly you become a virtuous runner. So for Aristotle, for Aristotle we become virtuous by doing the virtuous things. But Aquinas in the Christian tradition usually says, we can't do good things by ourselves because we're not good people. And so if we're going to have any of the virtues, we have them because God gives them to us, and we haven't thrown them away. Are these the automatic lights that if I start moving around? Okay. Um, there we go. Okay. So I'll just have to dance more to keep the... Uh, and the line is telling me not to dance over here. I got somebody else. Somebody else. Okay. Somebody's playing this. Okay. Sure. Well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if the light goes off, as I tell my students, do your best not to fall asleep. Yeah, that's what coffee is for. I've assigned coffee as homework to my students. Before. I think I always listen to it. 
Uh, so, so the idea is that the virtues in general are gifts of God, because all good things are gifts from God. But the theological virtues in particular are, we'll just pretend that the lights aren't flashing, uh, are, are infused, not formed by habituation. If I have faith, it's because that's going to be... You planned this, Kevin. Uh, uh, no. I wish I knew how to do this in my classroom at Calvin, because this would keep them uh, a bit more engaged. I heard somebody in the next room. Yeah, talk about that. Let's fix it. Alright. If you're able to find out what's going on and stop it, that would be a blessing. Um, there are lots of different kinds of virtues, but at the heart of the uh, Christian tradition is this idea that among all the others, there's specifically not just excellences of character, excellences of intellect, but three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, or sometimes it's called charity. And this isn't just a list. There's a particular internal ordering for this, so that it has to start in faith, grows through hope, and is consummated ultimately in love. <coughs> getting ahead of myself there. Uh, just a little bit about faith. Faith is understood in the Christian tradition as intellectual assent to the revealed truths that are at the heart of the Christian uh, uh, religion, at the heart of Christian belief. And so, uh, in hope, or sorry, in faith, we believe things not that we figured out on our own, but because we trust the person that has revealed them to us through the entity, namely the church, that they have real, revealed it through. And ultimately, our faith is not only given by God, but is rooted in God, so that God is both the ground and the object of our faith. And it's forward-looking. It's that we look to understand something that we don't on our own because the person that tells us is trustworthy. And then hope is going to build off of that. If we believe things because the person that tells us is trustworthy, then when that person tells us things like, there will one day be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Right? I can't get my, my brain around that. But if I trust the person that tells me that, then I have start to have hope, a kind of trust in the person that has revealed those things to me. I'm going to say more about hope in a minute, but then on to faith, or on to love or charity. This is the perfection of our desires. Love ultimately involves two desires, uh, a desire for union with the person that we love. I got my nine-year-old here in the front row. She can't, can't because she likes to spend time with me. There's more screen time at home, or on trips than there is at home. <laughs> but also a desire for the good of the beloved. If I really love my kids, I want not only to be united with them, but I want what really is good for them, even though the hard part about parenting is knowing what that is all the time. The highest good, of course, is God, and so this is why a theological virtue right, uh, ultimately aligns with union with God um, for ourselves. But we're not only united with God, we're united through God to all the other things that God is united to. So this is why love for God requires love for neighbor, love for one's enemy, love for all of creation. In loving God, we love all of the world. Right, so you've got this sort of building book. And, and this is why in Corinthians, Rindu already even talks about 1 Corinthians, the, the, the love passage, which really has very, very little to do with marriage and is all about how we're related to God. The greatest of these is love. So, as I already mentioned then, hope builds off of faith. It is faith that makes hope possible, and I want to talk more about faith, uh, hope today. Hope is the reaching out for some kind of goodness that has been revealed to us that we can't see as happens. And it strengthens us to endure the ad, uh, adversity that we're facing. And if you're not going through something hard, you don't need the theological virtue of hope. This is actually why uh, in, in, in heaven, uh, faith and hope drop out in the Christian perspective, right? We, we, we're not going to need to believe something because the church tells us because we'll have direction with God. We're not going to need to stand adversity because we're in the presence of God, but the greatest of these is love. Hope then has this fourfold nature. It's a movement toward something which does in fact perfect us. It's for this reason that like right, misplaced hope really isn't hope. 
God not only brings about hope, but is ultimately the object of our hope, in which we aim for union with God and find our perfect or, or per perfection and our fulfillment. But since to be properly related to God is to be properly related to everything else, it's also hope through, we also hope through God for the good and the union of all things. Right? Um, climate change is on some folks' minds these days, I think for good reason. How are we going to address that? Wow, I have no idea. But if I trust God's promises of the sorts that are given in Scripture and in tradition, then somehow I can have hope when it all looks um, to, to the kind of uh, uh, things that we're facing don't look to be the things that would, in fact, perfect us. I wrote my book, uh, book earlier that I mentioned, Disability <coughs> and Inclusive Communities, to try and show how making our various communities, it's written primarily for schools and churches, to be more welcoming and valuing of disabled individuals in a way that's, in fact, good for all of us. It's not just good for Jameson. His school is good for every kid goes there. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to care about those that have been outcast, downtrodden, right? left behind by other social groups. To be Christian, we must embrace the weak. All too have, often, though, that's not what we're particularly good at. This is the closing part of chapter one of my book. There I wrote, my goal in the coming pages is to help us take steps to make our communities more welcoming. People who feel different, or unvalued or excluded tend to disappear from our lives. We forcibly disappeared many with disabilities in our cultural history through institutionalization, selective abortion, exclusion, discrimination, and ableism. But we've also just made them feel so sufficiently unwelcome that they were withdrawn from our lives. That makes us worse off, even if we don't understand why that is and even if we understand why they might not want to persist in a community that doesn't properly value them. When, when we found out that the school in Idaho, the public school that we went to, was violating Jameson's state and federal right, uh, uh, rights, we realized just how problematic it was. One of the first things we did is we called the local Christian school and we said, hey, we'd like one of our kids to go there. That'd be great. Just to let you know, he's got disabilities. That's okay, we have no stairs in our school. Great, but guess what? That's not what he needs. Here's what he needs. The response was, we don't do that. Because it's too hard, it costs too much money. Let's try to better understand individuals with disabilities. Let's own up to our cultural history of exclusion. Let's make our communities more inclusive and welcoming to those with disabilities. For when we do that, we'll all be better off. Making our schools like that slide helps perfect our schools. Second, hope is forward-looking. None of us hopes for what we already have. I don't hope for three children. I've got them. Hope seeks a good which we do not yet possess. And it's here that this is the part of the talk where I'm most tempted to be the chicken of despair. Because a lot of my work as an academic is looking at the ways in which our culture does, in fact, mistreat individuals with disabilities. There's all sorts of reasons to think that the kind of world I want for my son, want for my daughters, indeed for all children, isn't the kind of world that we have. So here's just some of the relevant data, right? So, my inner chicken of despair coming out. It's still legal in 20, more than 20 states to forcibly sterilize individuals with disabilities because the Supreme Court's decision still stands when Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. The ADA is commonly violated. My wife texted me a picture or, uh, uh, just five minutes before we started. Our local mall is doing construction. And so what they have done is they've made the accessible parking area of the mall to the construction zone. So we're going to take her dad, who's uh, uh, also disabled, and lives with us to the mall. We now can't get parking up front, so he's not able to walk in. Walking over the footbridge from the hotel, I noticed that there weren't the automatic door openers, so people carrying either big boxes of stuff 
for people in wheelchairs or walkers or couldn't get through the doors without help. Still okay to use disability-related words as slurs, even though we've gotten much better at other sorts of slurs. 82% of children with learning disabilities report being bullied over twice the level of other students. There's a much higher risk of sexual assault if you have a disability. 83% of women with intellectual disabilities will be sexually assaulted compared with somewhere between 15 and 17% of the female population at large. 40% of adult males with disabilities will be victims of rape compared to 3% of the general male population. Increased risk of police violence. In fact, right, all the cultural discussions about race and, and, and police violence, which are problematic, the data might suggest that it's even worse to be autistic than to be a, 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 a male person of color in terms of police. Of course, if you're a person of color autistic, right, all sorts of problems. Lower conviction rates, 5% of crimes against people with disabilities result in convictions against 70% of assaults against other people. There's an entire book, by the way. <coughs> so this was one of the ways in which the ADA is violated. That's my employer last week, winter. Mark Shelley's an entire book on disability hate crimes. <coughs> Not pleasant before you go to bed reading. Adults with disabilities are less than half as likely to be employed, and that gap is widening. It's legal to pay disabled workers less than the federal minimum wage on the basis of an exemption to the Federal uh, Affairs Labor and Standards Act. Goodwill is perhaps one of the biggest employees of disabled adults in the country, and their average wage is about $6 an hour. There's no way that's a livable wage. Selective abortion, prenatal screening against genetic conditions. I can usually get lots of folks in Christian context to think that uh, selective abortion on the basis of disability diagnosis is, is, is atrocious. But then we start talking about the rates in which there's genetic prenatal screening before IVF in the same communities. People get a little bit more quiet. Less good health care, use of disability tropes to arouse pity or fear in various kinds of ways. This is one of the national autism uh, campaigns from a number of years ago. We have your son. We will make sure he'll not be able to care for himself, interact socially as long as he lives. This is only the beginning sign of autism. And what do we teach people by these messages? The way in which right, autism speaks, seeks a cure. I don't know a single uh, autistic adult that likes Autism Speaks as an advocacy organization. The way in which we infantilize people with disabilities. The vast majority of churches that have disability ministries orient them primarily, if not exclusively, to children. And as my autistic friend Carlisle reminds me all the time, autistic kids grew up to be autistic adults. They need a place too. Adults with disabilities are 40% more likely than regular adults never to attend church. They don't make them feel welcome. Churches actively campaigned to be exempt from the ADA and still are. This is why it's legal to have buildings like this that disabled adults can't even get into. Mentioned before, Christian schools don't have to accept students with disabilities. Many of them do, and for that I am profoundly thankful. Right? But many of them don't. So my hope for a world in which our son is properly valued is not a present good that we have. The data angers me precisely because the world does and will continue to mistreat him because it sees him as a disability diagnosis and not as a human being. We'll see him as having less value simply because of his diagnosis. So it's when I look at stuff like that, but I just get both really, really sad and really, really angry. That's, turn the corner now. If the world wasn't like this, we wouldn't need to have the hope. 
always hold in my heart. The, attain, the attaining of the hope for good is going to be arduous or difficult. This is why, like, hoping that Ohio State beats Michigan tomorrow is not really a hope. Or, or not, not tomorrow, in a couple of weeks, because it's going to happen. What would it take to fix all the things that I just mentioned? How do we get to the world that we envision from the world that we have? Where the picture that I showed you earlier with Jameson and his friend is not just a fleeting glimpse that warms my crusty, right, grinchy heart, but is something that we celebrate every community that he goes into. How do we get there? What would it take? Radical reorientation of our entire culture, our schools, our churches, our funding structures, our healthcare structures, our personal interactions, the way in which we value human life. Inclusion is hard. It really is. It's not easy. And in addition to teaching at Calvin, I'm on the uh, board of directors for All Belong, which used to be the CLC network, and I'm on the board because when I got to Grand Rapids and I realized how wonderful the local Christian schools are, and I asked everybody, why are you so much better than our experience in Iowa? And I said, because the CLC network's been here for 35 years. Okay, let me align with you, right? So I serve on their board because what they do is good. I'm not here promoting them, right? Uh, in any sort of uh, other sort of way. If I didn't believe in their mission, I wouldn't be on their board. They're committed to helping schools figure out how to do this, how, right, churches, how to do that. Do fantastic work. Finally, fourth, fourth is for an, uh, um, for an art, wait, sorry, I had skipped part of that. Got behind my slide. For the arduous and difficult good, we don't have that. But fourth, it's where we think that the good is possible. We can, in fact, achieve it. Imagine that you thought that there was a good out there that would perfect you, that would be good for your community, and there was no way to get it. Then the response would be despair. The theological virtue of hope is contrary to the vice of despair. This is why I'm not really the chicken of despair. If I lost my faith, then I'd lose my hope, and I probably would despair. Is a radically inclusive society possible? Yep. With God's help, that's the promise. Well, I haven't lost hope. Now I want to talk a little bit, third, about inclusive and the point of this is, is to actually have time at the end for, for some discussion as well as Q&A, so I'm not going to be presenting for the, for the entire time. What does this view of hope as a theological virtue have to do with inclusive education in Christian schools? Y'all smart people. You're starting to see this already. Since the virtue of hope is primarily with God, there's a sense in which I don't think the right, inclusive education of the best sort is going to get us all the way to the good that hope ultimately aims at. It's going to help us get somewhere, right? But hope is ultimately in God. That's why it's an infused virtue. If we have it, it's because God gives it to us and we haven't gotten rid of it yet. But I think that inclusive education can actually give us foretastes of this and, in fact, help us hope better. In part because it can help us see that part of which we hope for is possible even if it's difficult. Here's that picture again. Me. I was texting my wife these from two hours I was at. And I took work because it's been, I mean, one of the best things about being a professor is sort of the day-to-day uh, -day flexibility. So when I get home from school, and I pick up Jameson at work every day so I can talk to his aides. How's his day? Because he's not able to tell us. And then I go home and I help him read. I help Emma, who's up here with her homework. I help Maggie. <coughs> not so much with her Spanish, because I don't know Spanish. She knows what we're And that means a lot of the work that I normally do in the afternoon gets offset to the evening. Sometimes after we go to bed. So I took work with me thinking if I get stuff done, then I won't have to stay up this late to be ready for class tomorrow. And I just sat, sat I didn't even open the book I took. Because 
and just watch all the kids and watch them, right? Part of me was initially watching to make sure they were good to him. Because <laughs> these kinds of spaces make me nervous. <coughs> and I just watched how beautiful it was with students like this and so many others acted like him. Now imagine the boy on the left in 20 years. I mean, he's not the sixth grade teacher. Not the sixth grade student. He's the sixth grade teacher. I didn't have any students in my class that I knew of that had disabilities. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was passed in 1990. There was a, a reform of the earlier 1976 education for all handicapped, right? A year after I was born, every child with a disability was given a federal right to go to their local schools. And it doesn't happen. It didn't happen when I was a kid. I didn't understand how to engage with disability when we found out Jameson was disabled because I had spent almost all my life being segregated from because our culture was one in which disability was hidden, it was outsourced, it wasn't in schools, it wasn't in churches, we didn't talk about it in our family lives. And every student that is in Jameson's class, it's normalized. He's got students uh, in, in, in wheelchairs, he's got other autistic students, um, students with Down syndrome, She's listening. Her, her, her first year at our school, it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, first year at uh, the school that our kids go to, came home, and this is when they were all going to the elementary school, so I would take all of them and drop them off. And, and, and then when I came home to school, she's like, I've got a new friend. Great. What's their name? I don't know. She gives that for me. What can you tell me about? He's got really curly hair. Okay, that's not a whole lot of help. Here's what I want you to do the next time we get to school early enough for all, all to go out in the playground together before you go into, show me who the new student is. I'll introduce, right, who you new friend is. Introduce me to them. I want to know about him. What's he like? He's got really good hair. He's in a wheelchair. It didn't dawn on her that that was a salient feature to describe him. That's glorious. Someday students like this will be the teachers 15 years from now. 30 years from now, they'll be the principals that will make the decisions about do we have to do inclusive education even though it's hard, even though it's more expensive? How do we have to, right? Or he'll be the architect building sky bridges from the hotel over here. And they'll think, even if we don't need legally to have an automatic door opener, wouldn't it be good if everybody could get in? Or we're designing churches so that people in wheelchairs can roll up onto the platform that can happen at my local church, so that people in wheelchairs can get announcements in the same place that everybody else does. Or he'll be the person putting together a sports league. Think how much time of our kids' lives are spent in sports leagues. Now imagine that you're a kid in a wheelchair with an autism diagnosis and motor control problems, and think about how much of the goods of our <coughs> are built into sports leagues in ways that are often exclusionary. Kids at my son's school that are in wheelchairs playing a, a wheelchair basketball league, which I think is fantastic. In Idaho, we are part of uh, uh, one of the local therapists, who's a Boise State student, who said, I've got all these kids that I work with, and I grew up playing football, and these kids can't. So we started a flag football league where half of, every half of every team is a child with a disability and half are non-disabled peers. And it was wonderful to watch. One of the things I miss most about Idaho. Because this was a place where Jameson just doesn't care about sports, right? But we would go, it was good for him. And you would see kids that would play on other teams that was all about winning. And then they'd come over to help in the inclusive league. And suddenly winning's not what matters most. It was that everybody could be a part of it. And that happened because Gabe made it happen. So students like this are going to grow up to be more like Gabe. It's going to be glorious. What you all do in your classrooms every day makes a difference. Makes a difference to me as a parent is what you do in your classrooms, right? Not just about the faith component, 
but that part of the faith component is Jesus is an equal part of this community. He matters just as much as a child of God as any other kid. What you do in your classroom shapes whether or not people will be valued or if they'll be excluded will make a difference to what kind of world my children inherit. To quote Jay Dalmage in a fantastic book that I'm working through right now, Academic Ableism, we need to have this conversation, Jim, about this book as a Calvin community. It's been convicting. Oh, wow. Dalmage writes, the classroom shapes larger communities. Or to quote David Smith from an hour ago, enormous cultural power comes in teaching. That it does. I want to encourage all of you to work to make your schools more inclusive. Maybe they are, right? In which case, God bless you, I mean that. But it's always easy to lose those goods. Because even if we have a good, they're not secure. I've seen the transition of a principal set schools back 15 years in terms of inclusion. Not just your classrooms, though. Make your entire school more inclusive. Does your school have a sports team that kids with disabilities could play on? Is the culture of that team such that the other kids would want them to play on? Ableism, the robust devaluing of disabled lives, isn't just personal, it's structural. This is one of my biggest frustrations when I go into uh, IEP meetings as an advocate. Even if every single person there has good intentions, that doesn't guarantee that the system is set up for the child's success. Notice how much of uh, uh, David Smith's talk is not just about our intentions, but what about our practices are actually doing structurally and we don't realize it. Man, he's good. Pretty good. Dalmage writes, teachers recognize the diversity of students they teach, but teachers must also recognize their roles within institutions, disciplines, and perhaps even personal pedagogical, pedagogical agendas in which they may seek to avoid and disavow the very idea of disability, to give it no place. We can make people unwelcome even if we don't mean to. And so the steps that we need to work towards for the future are going to be difficult, but possible. They have to include both individual and structural goals. Whenever I come back from advocating for a family, Allison, my wife just says, you're in a bad mood. Why do you do this some days if it makes you so angry? Because it matters. The structures matter. And if I can threaten the school with a federal lawsuit, and they start to, and I've done that. Actually, one of my favorite experiences was I could give a, the, the director for inclusion, uh, sorry, the, the, the director of special education for the entire district, I made a point, and he, he said something, and I was just like, well, funny, what you said doesn't align with state and federal law. Here's my copy of the Idaho procedural uh, uh, special education manual. I've got one. Sounds like you could read it. Have my copy. <laughs> he was forcibly reassigned for a year and allowed to retire. Professor, there's a question up front here. In the morning, you have a question? <laughs> Is that sad? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I love seeing my daughters <coughs> be that kind of student. Our, our, our six-year-old loves uh, a very affectionate person with us. Right? But she often doesn't like to give people she doesn't know super well out. And there's a girl at her school with Down syndrome that loves to hug everybody. And we've had the conversation with other kids that you don't have to give people hugs unless you feel comfortable with, right? Touching your body, right? starting this at four and five years old, touching your body when you say no is not an acceptable practice. But our six-year-old, when she was in kindergarten, said, you know what? I don't always like hu hugging this other person. But it means so much to her that I'll make an exception. 
And this year, she, she just said, you know what I want to go as this, uh, for Halloween? I want to go as a service dog. What <laughs> 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 the first grader wants to be a service dog for Halloween, right? But, but this shows you something about her heart. Yeah. So I, I found a service dog then. <laughs> and she didn't come on this trip because she has a, a classmate who has a, a birthday party today. It's a Halloween right? So she's going to the birthday party today as a service dog, which I think is glorious. Dad, you can pretend to be blind when you trick or treat. No. <laughs> There's a limit to that. There's something especially <coughs> magical, especially hope-giving about the youth in this regard. I was the kind of person that had no idea what to do with disability until it encountered our family right smack in the face. In the first few years of my parenting a disabled child, I've got to say, I look back and I'm like, oh man, buddy, I've got to repent of that. I didn't know any better. Quina says this about youth who are especially prone to be objects of hope. <coughs> youth has much of the future before it and little of the past. Since memory is of the past and hope of the future, it has little to remember and lives very much in hope. Again, youths on account of the heat of their nature are full of spirit so that their hearts expand. It is owing to the heart being expanded that one tends to that which is arduous, where youths are spirited and hopeful. Likewise, they who have not suffered defeat, nor had experience of obstacles to their efforts, are prone to count a thing possible to them. Before youths, sorry, wherefore, youths through inexperience of obstacles and of their own shortcomings easily count a thing possible and consequently are of good hope. Last interim, uh, or January <coughs> semester at, at Calvin, ended a course just on disability as part of our uh, first year seminar. And I had these students, these wide-eyed, optimistic freshmen that came up, first year students that came up to me and were like, I realize now how bad my church is, and I'm going to go home on spring break, and I'm going to fix it. <laughs> and I thought, no, you're not. But keep up the fire. <laughs> I love the optimism. <laughs> But there's a certain, I love that you think you can do that. Pictures like this can help us imagine the good, envision what the future that we're working for will be like. In addition to our son, uh, we've, got, we've got two daughters. And as I already said, they're better off for having disabled students in their classes, for having disabled friends. Dad, how can I bring this student over for a play date? We have stairs into the house. I love that you're thinking about that. Here's what we would do with the parents' permission to make it possible for you to have that student over. Inclusive education is good for all the students. It's good for the parents of those students. And the data suggests this. There's a robust literature on the pedagogical value of inclusive education in general, and in fact, uh, Alba Long expects to have uh, some research published in the next year showing that when a school, a Christian school, is responsive to students with all abilities, alumni are significantly more likely, even 10 years later, to report that they are walking with God, and students are more likely to have higher reading scores. Now, I'm a philosopher. I always get worried about correlations, not necessarily being causations, right? And I haven't seen the literature in the summary. But imagine a more inclusive school actually contributed to people keeping their faith. That'd be glorious. Until our communities are marked by the kind of radical inclusion and sense of belonging that I think we aim at in Christian education, may we persevere in our work towards that goal. As St. Paul says, we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love had been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us hope. Given us hope. 
And here I want to close with a prayer that my good friend Aaron Cobb wrote. Aaron's also a philosopher, also a parent of a disabled child. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful book on the experience that he and his wife had on their second pregnancy, which is diagnosed at 20 weeks as trisomy 18, and their son Samuel lived five hours. They turned into a book called Loving Samuel. And it's, it's, I tend not to read sort of optimistic, cheery stuff. Just, this is a hard book, too, but it's a profoundly hopeful and Christian book. And this is a, a, a prayer that Aaron just wrote a few days ago. I said, that's good. Can I share it? Can you give me permission? Hope is not a clutching fear. It's the anticipation of goodness still possible, even in the midst of irreplaceable loss. It does not deny the suffering of loss. It holds out for the possibility of its ultimate redemption. Lord, I pray and hope. I pray for my hope that will not flinch in the face of loss. I pray that my hopes will be borne along by a deep trust in your desire to restore all things. I pray and hope for a better hope. So that's You can't end better than Aaron's prayer. Or at least I can. So we've got about 15 minutes. I'm a pacer when I talk. Self-control near the microphone. Questions? Things your school you think does well that illustrates this? So I'm mm -hmm. So like if you're going into an IEP meeting and you feel like everyone around has good intentions, like what triggers you then? Like what is the thing where you're like, wait a minute? Great question. Uh, so I've actually got a paper on this, the, uh, the first academic paper I've written out of my work as an advocate, and it's called uh, uh, The Administrative Evil of Special Education. Right? And it's drawing on some work by these uh, political, uh, uh, public policy folks where they look at, the, uh, this is what they call administrative evil. Everybody is given a certain task, right? It, it, uh, uh, bureaucracy. And so long as everybody is doing their task, then nobody's responsible for what the large system does. And so he's got an entire chapter looking at the administrative evil that made possible the Challenger disaster, right? as well as what made possible uh, uh, the Third Reich's final solution. Right? And so often what happens in these meetings is every person is given some very particular thing. You're the speech therapist. You're the occupational therapist. You're the, and everybody is looking basically towards, have I done what my very narrow professional role requires? And it can be that every person is doing their role, but you're not looking for intersections. You're not, uh, the, the biggest problem I have with IEP meetings is the parents is treated as a guest rather than a member. Parents are full equal members of the IEP team. And, and so I always look for when whoever's running the meeting and say, well, the IEP team thinks. And I'm like, wait, wait, parents. No, they don't. You think that. You think that your voice matters more than, right? And it's the, uh, so part of what I see is, is, is to make sure that my job is to make sure not just that the different people are doing their thing, right? But the system is set up for success. When we started advocating with this public school back in Idaho, the, the, the woman that was his, uh, uh, ERR teacher, the extended resource room teacher, the special ed room. I don't like the term special ed, but it's in law and, and literature, so sometimes you have to use it. Came up to us and she just said, you know what, there's so much I want to do for him. But I'm a glorified babysitter, so I've got 16 students and one aide, and it's Idaho with a weak teacher shooting. I can't cause too much. Here's what you do. Get me the information. Don't violate FERPA for other students. Get other parents my car. So what I would see is that my job was to make sure that all the different parts are actually doing what they can. And, and often it's the principal that comes into these meetings or after I've been into a district a couple of times and like the director of special education for the district. And if I go into Forest Hills now, it's legal counsel for the district. They're not looking out for the student. They're covering their own tail. There's not anybody, right? And, and often the principal or whoever's running the meeting is, has an hour <coughs> of 19 different other tasks, right? Um, but every teacher, everybody can do in their role, but we're not coordinating well. Right? So, so here's just an illustration of this. It could, it could be that everybody's thought about their own goals, but nobody gets the draft IEP to the parent a week ahead of time. 
so that you look at it. And how weight, like, I, I just repeatedly told IEP meetings, we just now got this. You expect us to read it and process it in the next 20 minutes and make decisions? We're going to put this meeting on hold. We're going to come back next week. Schools don't like to reschedule these, right? Because they're expensive to reschedule. I'm cheap compared to them. And, and, and so that's, everybody's there is doing their job, but nobody was thinking about how all the parts look together to do, right? It, it, it's parallel to uh, David Smith's example about email. We're all looking to do our job, right? And we think that our job is to like respond to the emails that come in from the parents or the students or, or whatnot. But we're unintentionally creating a culture where there's no blaming, there's no boundaries in terms of our work. And we, all, we often have similar things like that in terms of special education. So that's what I mean. And I think there are steps that we can take by thinking about the patterns, not just of our individual role, but how the structure as a whole is coming together. Because it's oftentimes the structure is not helpful. What's the title of that again? The evil one. The administrative evil of special education. <laughs> the editors for the volume let me get away with what I, I, I'm an academic, I like footnotes. I think it's my favorite footnote I've ever written. And it's a footnote to the title of the paper. It says, this paper is dedicated to the Grand Rapids public and Nampa public school districts. May you one day no longer deserve the criticisms here. <laughs> if, if, I, I, most of my stuff is on my web page. I think you can get a copy of that just by going to My wife says I'm not very nice sometimes. Yeah, maybe. So, good question. Does that answer a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you were referring to your son as an autistic person. Mm -hmm. um, so is that, and I've, I've read places that people with autism do prefer to be called autistic people. Yep. Is that true? Not the person yep. first language situation. Yeah, so the studies that I've seen are, and, and this was in the United States, was about 80% of autistic adults prefer to be called autistic than person with autism. When I wrote the, the Disability Inclusive Communities book, I used individual, uh, sorry, I used person first language. I kind of regret doing that now. Um, teachers are primarily the ones that I think are taught to do it. Um, but I think that there's, and, and so often when I do sort of like, Public talks, I'll still use it, but I was giving a talk at Houghton uh, a couple weeks ago and I talked about why I don't use it anymore. Um, first of all, I just think it's clunky, right? Um, uh, and, and I like the idea that um, uh, uh, we care more about the person, right? But if the only way that you care about my son is if we say a person with autism or a person with a display, the language isn't going to help. Um, and, and Elizabeth Barnes has, has uh, a wonderful philosophical book on disability, which she just says, you know, disability isn't exactly like these other kinds of things, but it's structurally much like it. We don't say a person with gayness. We say a gay person. And in that case, we don't think that that adjective coming before the noun suddenly magically, like, <coughs> takes away the personhood. So... Yeah, so in, in a lot of, but especially for autistic adults. Um, and, and I was getting in, I get, I get, on too, many, I get in too many arguments. Uh, uh, one of them I get, I hate, the, I hate the word special needs, sorry, the phrase special needs. Special education is bad enough, but it's enshrined in federal law, and so I use it. My son, his, his, his primary needs are mine food, shelter, community. Belonging, right? and, and I we never use, we hardly ever use special needs about adults with disabilities. Right? And whenever our language starts to treat a category in a way that we just primarily think of kids, like we need to worry about the infantilization of that group. So I use autistic adult on purpose, um, and in much of my writing, I use disabled child or disabled adult on purpose. So I, if, if I know a particular person's preference, right, I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not mean. I'm going to use their preference, right? And, and so if I know somebody wants certain language, then I'm going to use it to them. But in public, we have to use something. So that's, yeah.
There's a new heaven and a new earth that come down. This is what it is. So part of it is just thinking about the ways in which and, uh, what we would look right at. Uh, I mean, if you, if you have that model, then like the Great Commission's out the window too. God's going to do it. We don't have to. So one of the things we can do is help people see sort of the, the, the parallels there. But our Christian hope is the redemption of this world, not a new one. And wouldn't it be better if we started working towards that now? So yeah, let's, let's not be naive. Thank you. Have a good lunch.